1 John 4, starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Well, there are manifold ways in which the love of God is put on display in his body, the church. Even last week, our family experienced the love of God through the saints as I was sick and I unfortunately had to call Elder Ken in the morning and ask him to preach in my place, but willingly, lovingly served and, and did what he have to, had to do in that case. There was a couple, Aaron and Adele, who brought us a meal while we had the flu so that we didn't have to cook for ourselves. There's all kinds of ways in which the love of God is expressed among us, as we experience the love of God, because God is love, we begin to love one another in the church. That's what, what, what I want to talk about this morning from 1 John. As we close our series in the attributes of God, and this is really one of the crown jewels, I think, of God's attributes God's crown, many diamonds and gems are affixed to it. There's something special about the love of God, a great attribute of our loving Lord. Now, there's three points here I want to delineate. First is the source of love among us, verses 7 to 8. Then verses 9 to 10 is the manifestation of love among us. And then thirdly, the perfection of love among us in verses 11 to 12. First of all, the source of love among us, verses 7 to 8. John begins this passage with the term, beloved, agapetos. And really, I think he, in doing this, models what he's about to preach, what he's about to teach us in this passage. And throughout this letter, he addresses the Christians he's speaking to as beloved at times. For instance, chapter 2, verse 7, if you just comb through the book, you can see these mentions. Beloved, chapter 4, verse 1, beloved, and then again in verse 7 here. He reminds the church that he himself, as an apostle, loves them. They are his beloved and I think in saying this, he, is also, he also has in mind the love of God for them. They are God's beloved. 
And so he's speaking of the love of God even in the way that he addresses them. Now the first thing he tells them is, let us love one another. And he will repeat this command in verse 11. It says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. He repeats it again in verse 21. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This command really has its origin back in John chapter 13. As Jesus was preparing for the last week of his life, the Passion Week, as he was preparing to go to the cross, and I'll have you turn here, John chapter 13, verse 34, mentions this commandment to love one another. You remember in that chapter, Jesus washes the disciples' feet, showing that he was serving them, that he loved them in this self-sacrificial, serving kind of way. And then he says to them in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus calls this a new commandment. Now, of course, in the Old Testament, we even had commands to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's the command in Leviticus 19 to love your neighbor as yourself. Even if we look at the Ten Commandments, you can break them into two sections, our duty to God and our duty to man, to love God in these first four commandments and to love our neighbor in these last six commandments. And then Jesus will summarize, for instance, in Matthew 22, all of those commands breaking down again into those two great commandments, love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. And so it's not as if the other scriptures don't testify to the love that we're to have toward God and each other. But this is something of a new commandment because it has special application and special significance in light of what Jesus was going to do for his disciples. He gives his own life and his death, his sacrificial death for them and his love for them in that act as the example of love that they are to follow. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And we see this command expressed throughout the rest of the New Testament. In many ways, there are about 60 other one another commands in the New Testament that show us how to express this love towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. For instance, Galatians 6, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Romans 15, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Colossians 3 says, we're to forgive one another. If anyone has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. As God has forgiven you, so you also must 
forgive. The love of Christ becomes this pattern we're to follow in loving one another. And John in 1 John chapter 3, we'll also make mention of this even earlier in the epistle here. 1 John 3 verses 11 to 18, he says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So this is a command for all Christians that we love one another. Indeed, a mark of true believers, as we'll see as we go down further as well. The world hates Christians. Jesus says in John 15, if they hate you, don't be surprised. They hated me before they hated you. As the world is against Christ, so also it is against the body of Christ. But this is the mark that we really know God, if we love one another. So what John is speaking of in 1 John 3, 7 is a unique and special love between brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. This is the command to love one another in the body of Christ. Let us love one another. Now, he gives us some reasons here. <clears throat> Verse 7, first of all, God is the source of love. It says, for love is from God. See, this is not something of earthly origin. It's of heavenly origin. Human beings cannot produce this love on their own. Rather, like I said, the world hates naturally God and the people of God. So this love comes from God. And then he goes on to say, essentially, that love is the evidence of a saving knowledge of God. Still in verse 7 here, he says, And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. To be born of God, as John speaks of it often in this letter, is to be regenerated, to be given new life, new spiritual life by the Spirit of God. Friends, we know that we're all born into this world first in our natural birth as children of Adam, not as children of God, but children of our father, Adam. And that means that we are born in sin. We are born dead in sin. 
lost and disobedient from the heart. Ephesians 2 would say, we're sons of disobedience, children of wrath by nature. We've inherited Adam's guilt and the corruption of his nature, being totally depraved in and of ourselves. And we're in desperate need of a new birth, to be born again. As Jesus says in John 3, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. We are not born part of God's family, God's kingdom, God's covenant. We are not a part of God's family. We are not children of God until we are born again by the Spirit. But as we'll see as we go on, this is the very thing that Jesus came into the world to do, that we might live through Him. But when someone is born again, what John is saying is, they will love one another. Whoever loves has been born of God. This love that we have for one another in the church is an evidence of the new birth given by the Spirit of God. He also adds here that whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And what he means by that is a a real intimate knowledge of God, a relational knowledge of God. Not just knowing about God, like you know that Tokyo, Japan exists, but knowing God, like you know that Grand Prairie exists, and you live in it, and you abide in it. You know it. If you know God in this way, if you know Him truly, relationally, in an intimate way, then you will have this love for one another. So love really is the evidence of a saving knowledge of God. He again says this negatively in verse 8. He says anyone who does not love does not know God. Okay, so if there's no love for one another in the church, well, God is not there. We don't truly know God if we don't love the people of God. And he says further, because God is love. Now this is a profound phrase here, isn't it? It's actually a unique phrase in the Bible. As far as I can tell in Scripture, and to my memory and my study, there is no phrase like it. It's kind of like the phrase in Isaiah 6, where the angels cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. We don't see anywhere else in Scripture an attribute exalted in that threefold degree. We don't see love, 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 or righteous, righteous, righteous. But likewise here, we don't find in the Bible any phrase like this. We don't find God is holiness. We don't find God is truth. We don't find God is righteousness. There's a uniqueness to this phrase, God is love. Matthew Henry comments and says this, 
God's nature and essence are love. His will and works are primarily love. Not that this is the only conception we ought to have of him, but love is natural and essential to the divine majesty. There is something so profound about love. It is part of God's very nature. I think we can say all of the attributes of God are simply who he is in his nature expressed to us. But love is certainly a very special attribute of God. There's that quote from Tozer, when you think about God, what comes into your mind? And that's the most important thing about you is our conception of God. Well, when you think about God, do you think God is love? Love should never be far off in our conception of God. He is love. We can call him love with a capital L as we do in some of our hymns. Before the throne of God above has this line where he talks about our great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for us. Of course, we should not mold God into our image as even our culture has a different definition of love than the Bible's definition of love. Essentially, our culture's definition of love is an unfettered toleration. You're, you're just to tolerate everything that everyone does, and that's love. But that's not God's love. God, God's love is a holy love. It's a righteous love. It doesn't rejoice with evil. It rejoices at the good. But nevertheless, God is love. God is full of love within himself. There's an inter-Trinitarian love. As the persons of the Trinity love one another and have loved one another before all the ages began. Logan read from John chapter 17. And Jesus speaks of this love that the Father had for him. In verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Verse 26, he says, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. There's a love within the Trinity. We could say God is like an ocean of love. And he pours some of this love also into us. God did not need to create people in order to love something or to be loved. Rather, he had love before all other things were created. Between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, there is this eternal love. God's love, of course harmonizes with all his other attributes. His love is like a, a great quilt with, with many colors woven into it. It's an everlasting love, eternal love. Psalm 103 would call it from everlasting to everlasting. It's the steadfast love of God. It's an immense love as high as the heavens are above 
the earth. So great is his steadfast love to us. It's also in Psalm 103. Ephesians 3.19 notes that it's an incomprehensible love. It, it surpasses knowledge, this love of Christ. We're called to know it and comprehend it. The, the breadth, the width, the height, the depth of this love of Christ. But it surpasses knowledge. It's incomprehensible. It's a faithful love. That special term in the Old Testament used of God's love, hesed. It's a covenant love. It's a faithful love toward His people. Ephesians 2.4 notes that it's a gracious and kind and merciful love. That it was because God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even while we were dead in trespasses and sins, He raised us up, us up with Christ. By grace, we've been saved. It is also toward His people in unconditional love. Deuteronomy chapter 7 speaks in this way, and I actually want to turn here. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 to 8. He speaks to the people of Israel and who he has chosen as his people, his treasured possession. <coughs> and he says there, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. What he's saying there is, this love is not conditioned on anything about you. It wasn't because of your greatness. It wasn't because you were the greatest nation on earth. You were the, the least. I love you because I love you. And I made a promise to love you and redeem you. See, God's love for His people is unconditional. It's not based on anything we've done. In fact, we are all enemies of God apart from Him. We are sinners. We've been lost. And yet God freely pours this love upon us. Lavishes it richly upon us in Jesus Christ. We should also note that God's love is both general and special. There is a general love of God. That is, He does good to all, as Psalm 145.9 says. And the earth is full of His steadfast love, as Psalm 33 verse 5 says. There is a love on display constantly in this world, in all of God's creation. We read in Luke 6, 35 to 36 that God even loves the ungrateful and evil. As we're called to love our enemies, well, the example we have is God Himself. Because He loves the ungrateful and evil, He does good to them. He brings fruitful seasons. He makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust. There is a kind of love that God shows to every single creature on this planet, there is a general love. 
At the same time, affirming that, we have to, of course, affirm that God hates sin. Not only that, but He hates sinners. Psalm 5, 4 to 6, and Psalm 11, verse 5. God is a wrathful God against evil, and He hates all sin and evil. Yet, He shows great love to all of His creation. But there is a special love that God shows as well. His special love for His people. Like the special love of a mother for her children, or a husband to his wife, a special, overflowing, committed, covenant love. John 13, 1 noted that as Jesus' days were coming to the close, it said, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them till the end. It's a special love that he had for his disciples, his people. And as we go on in 1 John 4, John notes the greatest display of this special love in verses 9 and 10. So here we see the manifestation of love among us. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. If you really want to see God's love on display, if you want to see God's love, as it were, in a a big sign with neon flashing lights, this is where you look, John says. This is the manifestation of God's love to us, among us. It is in the Father sending the Son into this world for our redemption. He says this in a couple ways here. And noting, first of all, in verse 10, he says, it's not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. And verse 19 will say, we love because He first loved us. His love was prior. As I said, we we are all born rebels in God's world, right? We are enemies of God until the love of God finds us. And then we begin to love. But our salvation was not initiated by our, our own love for God. It was not that we loved God. That's not the greatest manifestation of love. It's that He loved us. And how did He love us? Well, this, this is the way in which He loved us. Verse 9, He says that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. He sent His only Son. And we should pause once in a while and think about that term, only Son. It's used elsewhere in John's writings. We might immediately think of John chapter 1. It's mentioned a couple times there in that chapter. John 1 and verse 14. First of all, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Then down in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, or God, the only Son, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Oh, that term there, only son, is the word monogenes in Greek. And it's a very special term. It means the only begotten. Monos means only or alone. And genes refers to something being produced or begotten or given birth to. It's an only begotten son is spoken of here. This word is also used elsewhere in the Gospels, not just referring to Jesus. You remember the story in Luke 7 where there's a widow at this town called Nain and she's lost her son. He's died. But Jesus, in compassion, raises him from the dead. Now this This son in that story is referred to as monogenes, the only begotten of this woman. And of course, as a widow then, she would be left on her own and without her son. And he was her only son, a very special son to her. And so Jesus, in love, raises this son from the dead. It's also used in Luke 9, verse 38 of that man with the demon-possessed son who would often throw himself into the fire or the water and he's asking for Jesus' disciples and then Jesus himself to heal his son. And this also was a monogamous and only begotten. You know, if you're a parent, you understand the love you have for your children and how much more if that child is an only child the only child that you were ever able to bear. Hebrews 11.17 also uses this term of Abraham's son Isaac. Isaac was a monogamous and only begotten. Of course, Abraham had another child with, with Hagar, but his only legitimate child with Sarah was this son Isaac. And he was given very specially to Abraham to inherit the promises And of course, after they were too old to really have children. And if you were to look at Genesis chapter 22, as God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son. Over and over, it mentions that Isaac was his only son. His beloved son. What then does this term monogamous mean? Well, the Son of God was the only begotten Son of the Father. Not that God produces children like us, but He is called the Son from all eternity. From all eternity, there has been this Father-Son relationship within the Trinity. The Father loved the Son as His only begotten Son, as His special Son, 
His beloved Son, the one He loves. And that love is great and eternal. And so what John wants us to understand here in 1 John 4 is it is a magnificent and eternal, a great love on display. It is the greatest display of love that God would send His only begotten, beloved, monogamous Son into the world. And how much more to send Him into the world that He knew would crucify Him. This world in rebellion against God that would hate Jesus Christ and put Him on the cross and crucify Him. To send Him into that world was to give up His only Son on our behalf. It was to crush His Son so that we might be saved through Him. So this is a great love, that God would give up His only begotten Son. John 3.16 speaks in this way as well. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever believes in Him may not perish but have everlasting life. In 1 John 3, verse 1, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Friends, this is the great love of God on display as the Father gave the Son, and as the Son died for us. As Romans 5, verse 8 would say, God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And what's more is that he did all this for our redemption. Verse 9, he says, so that we might live through him. God sent his son into this world so that we could have that new birth, so that we could be born again to spiritual life, so that we would have eternal life. Not only in this life, but the next also to be raised just like Jesus Christ was. And so it's for our redemption that God sent his son into this world, showing his great love for us. And in verse 10, he mentions the propitiating work of Christ. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means an appeasing sacrifice. Jesus came into this world to appease the wrath of God against His own children, against His elect. We deserve God's wrath. We deserve God's judgment as sinners in His world. We deserve an eternity separated from His goodness and under His judgment in hell. And yet God in love made a way to forgive us by sending His Son as this atoning sacrifice, bearing the curse, bearing our sins and the wrath of God in our place in order to forgive us and welcome us into a relationship with Himself. See, John wants us to know that the greatest manifestation of love is the redeeming work of God through His Son. As St. Augustine said, 
The cross was a pulpit in which Christ preached His love to the world. Just as I'm standing in a pulpit, I declare a message to you. Jesus, in dying on the cross, was declaring this message of God's love to the world. And in John 13, He was giving a symbol of that love as He washed His disciples' feet. This is a self-giving kind of love, a self-sacrificing love for the good of others. The Father loves us in this way. The Son has loved us in this way. And so John's argument is that we also ought to love one another in this way. God himself is love, and he has so displayed his love in this great manner. And so anyone who does not love does not know God. But we who know God are called to love one another. And verses 11 to 12 shows the perfection of love among us. <coughs> he says in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Literally, we are under obligation to love one another. If God has loved you in this way, and then you refuse to love others in the same way, would that not be something like cosmic treason? You take this love for your own benefit, but you won't give it to others. That's like the wicked servant Jesus talks about in Matthew 18. Forgiven this great debt, and then he won't forgive others. We are called to love because we have been loved in such a way. We are under obligation to love. Not that this is simply a duty. It's, it's a delight to love one another. Out of the outflow of God's great love for us. But nevertheless, we are commanded to do it. That's interesting because John has noted that if we are born of God and if we know God, well, we do love. This is one evidence of the new birth that we have this innate love for one another in the body of Christ. But he still has to remind these people to love one another. Now, why is that? Well, we still are Sinful people, of course. We are not perfect in our love. Sometimes people in the church will even offend us, sin against us, or hurt us. And so in this imperfect church environment, we have to be reminded, look at how God has loved you. God is love. You are also to love one another. And so there are reminders throughout Scripture of these commands. Bear one another's burdens. You know, don't be partial to one another. Serve each other like Christ served us, Philippians 2. Consider the interests of others in addition to your own. Romans 15, welcome one another. Colossians 3, be compassionate to one another. Forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Friends, one thing we have to know about church life is it's not always going to be perfect. If 
you really commit yourself to a local church, there will be times, there are difficulties, there are trials, there are conflicts that may arise. There are people who may hurt you by their words and actions. You may be tempted to judge others or be bitter against others, to hold grudges or to lash out or be unkind, to be impatient, to lack compassion, to gossip. There will be times when Christians sin against one another. We're not to be under the illusion that we have to find some perfect church. Maybe this is why some people hop from church to church to church. They're looking for the perfect church, right? But there is no perfect church. And that's why we're called to love one another just with the same love that Christ loved us with. See, Christ loved us while we were still sinners, right? Christ was gracious to us in his love. He had to serve. He had to bear cost to himself. And so we have to be ready to bear some cost to ourselves, to stick with the people of God, to love in the way that God loves, faithfully, unconditionally, graciously, like our Lord has loved us. So we're called, friends, to love one another. And verse 12 says that as we do this, we are a visible display of God. It says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. We've seen that truth as we've gone through the attributes of God. No one has ever seen God. There's something of God that is inaccessible to us. He is, he is high. He is lofty. Even Moses was not allowed to look at his face because no one can see his face and live. God let him see the trailing end of his glory. No one has ever seen God. He dwells in inaccessible light. And yet John says here, Essentially, if we love one another, we put God on visible display among us. If we love one another, God abides in us to have this kind of love in our midst is to have God in our midst. He remains in us, among us. He abides among us. As we love one another. It's really interesting. As Jesus prayed there in John 17. As well in that very last verse. He says I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. And I in them. When the love of God is in us. Jesus is in us. God abides where his love abides. And so this is how we put God on display in this world. Just as Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you 
love one another. John 13, 35. This is indeed the end goal of God's love. To come from this God who is love. Poured out to His Son. And through His Son, poured out into us. And completed in us. This is what he, he says here in verse 12. His love is perfected in us. That is, it's fulfilled, it's completed. It's brought to its end goal. We are filled with the fullness of God as God's love in its fullness dwells in us. And His love is completed, it's perfected in us. Friends, in conclusion in this passage, would have you know God is love. God is love. Just think upon that and never forget that. He has shown this great love. He has manifested it upon Calvary as God the Father gave His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. To be the propitiation for our sins and bear the wrath that we deserved. God has so loved us. He is a loving God. Glory in His love. Enjoy His love. Praise Him for His love. As Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Daily, walk in the love of God. Be rooted and grounded in the love of God. Paul prays that way in Ephesians 3. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength with all the saints to comprehend what is the height and the width and the depth and the breadth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. We're to dwell in the love of God. He will dwell in us. We're to bathe in it. We're to wash ourselves in this love. And let it wash our selfishness away. That we would not be selfish and proud and simply loving as the world has it, tolerant about everything. But that we would really have an agape love, a self-giving love, a divine love among us to bear cost, to forgive, to be gracious, to be patient. To be loving toward even those who are imperfect as ourselves. And friend, if you're here today and you have never known the love of God, well, look to the cross, friend. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever believes in Him may not perish but have everlasting life. That's the promise. Believe in Jesus Christ. And you will know the love of God. You'll be spared from hell. You'll be welcomed into eternal fellowship with the Godhead. Believe in Jesus Christ and come to Him. Friends, let us pray for more and more love. Paul prays in Philippians 1.9 that our love would abound still more and more. There's always room for more love, isn't there? We're always imperfect. We can grow in love for one another. This is actually the first thing I pray for every week 
as your pastor. I pray for love. I pray for unity. Just as Jesus prayed for such in John 17. And friends, by way of encouragement, you already manifest God's love among you. There is an excelling of brotherly love in this church. But go on more and more. We have the standard of Christ's perfect love for us to look to. The everlasting love of God. How immense and free, more than life to me, the everlasting love of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you have so loved us. God, sinners undeserving, yet you sent your only begotten Son to us. Father, we can't comprehend this love, but we pray we would. We pray we would know more and more of it, the, the height and the width and the depth and the breadth. God, that you would increase our love for one another. And Lord, keep us in your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.